Episode 18 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 4.3, Battle Analysis, Battles of Hill Amnihu and Sidon Crossing, and the Subsequent Pursuit. Welcome to War in the Book of Mormon. I am Brian Steed, and in this episode we will discuss some of the most exciting battles described in the Book of Mormon. We will also see a non-professional military commander do some amazing things as Alma Tube will cross a river and heroically clear the far side like some character from a Marvel movie. This is flat out exciting stuff. As always, we will need to fill in some of the details that are not included. The American World War II General, George S. Patton Jr., wrote in a personal journal from 1921 and 1922 the following advice to himself, and I quote, Success in war depends upon the golden rule of war, speed, simplicity, boldness. The fog of war works both ways. The enemy is as much in the dark as you are. Be bold. Close quote. This was a man who led tank battalions in the attack in World War I and saw the confusion of one of the largest wars in human history firsthand. His advice was not offered from an academic perspective. He was saying what he knew to be true. We will see that Alma II will apply this very advice to be successful against what were significant odds. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mormon provides a great comparison and contrast between the quality of leadership and dynamic personalities as well as the growth of the military art in the battles discussed here and again in our discussion on the Battle of Manti. Laconius, in the early part of 3rd Nephi, nearly a hundred years later, played a similar role, but it was not like what is portrayed here. Alma II was not a king, but as discussed in episode 16, or part 4.1, his leadership style seemed to be more similar to King Mosiah II than to Chief Judge Nephiha. His behavior on the battlefield clearly demonstrated the Homeric version of a warrior king. This episode includes discussions on five related engagements and battles that all occurred within a couple of days of each other. The Battle of Hill Amnihu, Pursuit to the Valley of Gideon, the Battle of Minon, the Battle at Sidon Crossing, and the Pursuit to the Wilderness of Hermounts. The battles discussed in this episode form a chain of events that are difficult to separate from each other. The Nephites under Alma II accomplished the following in this sequence. The armies of the Nephites fought and defeated an army of dissenters. They pursued the defeated dissenters until nightfall, and learning the dissenters joined an invading army of Lamanites. The Nephites changed course and focus and then attacked the attacking combined Lamanite dissenter army at a ford of the river Sidon, which required that Alma II and his army force the opposing army away from the crossing point, and then inflict such heavy casualties that the Lamanite dissenter army broke 
and ran in wild retreat away from their homeland and toward a distant wilderness. This broken army was then pursued to complete defeat as they fled. Al-Matu's leadership throughout was spectacular. He planned and prepared an army organizationally more complex than the previous armies in the record, and he led this army in two extremely challenging attacks. Comparing this episode with the events we will discuss about the Battle of Manti allows a great contrast of the tactical feat of crossing a ford of the River Sidon. Here it was done successfully. Later, Moroni will use a variety of stratagems to prevent the Lamanite commander Zarahemna from enjoying similar success. Mormon provided several pieces of critical information in this battle in terms of justification and reasoning for the initial engagement and reconnaissance. He also introduced the reader to several technical and tactical aspects of Nephite warfare, marking of units and organizations, subordinate commanders, attacking while crossing a danger area, and the critical need to maintain and encourage morale before and during a battle. Alma too could have been shown as an innovative political and military leader, but Mormon emphasized his spiritual leadership as this was obviously the focus of his record. It is useful to remember that Alma too was not a bookish, wandering monk, but a powerful leader in every endeavor of his life. In this narrative, we see his powerful leadership ability in a clear way that is only inferred in other portions of his life story shared in the record. Not only did he personally lead, but he did so in one of the most challenging environments. He attacked, pursued, was informed of changes in the situation, reassessed, changed the plan, redirected his forces, moved, attacked again, and pursued again. The brevity of the recorded events makes this sound simple, but he accomplished a series of events extremely complex in execution. As previously described in episode 17, or part 4.2, the second portion of the battle was possibly a reaction of the Lamanite king to his personal humiliation, and this represented not necessarily a concentrated effort at conquest as much as a desire to raid and punish. The timing between the events with Ammon and this attack is unclear and therefore difficult to surmise the depth of commitment and length of time invested in the planning and concentration of forces. As a result of this lack of information, the real intentions of the Lamanite king are difficult to know in detail. The general ones are clear inflict harm and damage on the Nephites, and capture material and slaves for the Lamanites. I refer you to the Book of Mormon record and recommend that you listen to or read the portions that I am about to address so that you are recently reminded of the events to which I will refer. This sequence of events is described in Alma chapter 2 verse 15 through Alma chapter 3 verse 1. Geographical Setting Location The campaign began on the hill Amnihu, to the east of the river Sidon, in the land of Zarahemla, as explained in Alma chapter 2 verse 15. It is assumed that the hill was northeast of Zarahemla, though this is uncertain. 
The battle continued into the valley of Gideon and into the land of Minon. Both lands were to the south of Zarahemla and on the east side of the river Sidon. The battle moved to a crossing site on the Sidon River south of the city of Zarahemla. The reason for a large battle to occur on the hill of Nehu is never given. There is a hint in Alma chapter 2 verse 15 that maybe Nephites lived on the hill. Though this is inconclusive, it is possible that this hill was part of the city of Zarahemla, though the accompanied sketch does not show it this way. It is certain that this hill served as a dominating piece of terrain that would force the Nephite army to come out to battle. It must have dominated trade routes or regularly used paths to agricultural areas of the land of Zarahemla. Terrain slash Vegetation There is little mention of terrain or vegetation, though there is a great deal that can be understood from the context of the text. The battles began on the side of Hill Amnihu. The slope certainly played a role in the process of the battle. It is unclear who was in position on the uphill slope, though I am supposing that Amlesai was in position there and had the uphill side. This meant that the Nephites were attacking uphill. The 6th century BC Chinese military philosopher Sun Tzu said, and I quote, an army prefers high ground to low. Fight downhill. Do not ascend to attack. Do not attack an enemy who occupies key ground. Close quote. The Nephites failed to keep up with the fleeing Amlicites at the closing of the battle at Hill Amnihu. It is probable that they moved through thick vegetation to and in the Valley of Gideon, which would slow an organized force and allow a disorganized mob to escape a marching army. This is a battle where daylight and lack thereof played a role. The fighting at Emnihu took place in the day, or at least I am supposing so. We are told in Alma 2 verse 20 that when Alma 2 and his army couldn't pursue the Amlicites any longer, they pitched their tents and spent the night while reconnaissance forces, or spies, continued to find out where the Amlicites had gone. We are not told why the Nephites couldn't pursue any longer. Lack of light, exhaustion, bad trails, no idea. It is probable that the reasons were a combination of multiple factors. At Sidon Crossing, there was, of course, the River Sidon. This river was an obstacle and has a significant current at various times of the year, though no details of the river conditions were provided, except to say that the river had sufficient volume to carry the dead bodies of the Amlicites to the sea in Alma chapter 3, verse 3. Despite the lack of information, it is clear the Nephite army crossed the river while conducting an attack. The river bed and the water in it represent a significant obstacle to large-scale movement and would have been a hindrance to Almatu and his forces. The information provided in the record and elaborated on in this section has led to a conceptual sketch of the general areas of the various battles and engagements which I am posting at War in the Book of Mormon on Facebook. The time of the year is unclear though another Lamanite attack happened later in the same year. 
so it is safe to suppose that this battle occurred early in the campaigning season of the fifth year of the reign of the judges. Who was involved? The battle on Hill Amnihu is a battle that provides specific numbers on casualties. Mormon also tells us that the Amlicites fought with, quote, great strength, close quote, in Alma chapter 2, verse 17, and the Nephites slew with a, quote, great slaughter, close quote, in verse 18 of the same chapter, which denotes significant casualties prior to the breaking of the will of the Amlicites. This said, the number of deaths is assumed to be between 20 to 50 percent of the overall force committed of the Amlicites and slightly less of the Nephites. In this series of battles, there are three forces identified, Nephites, Amlicites, and Lamanites. Each element is explained in turn. Nephite Forces The battle on Hill Amnihu was the first where a significant division of forces was expressed through the chain of command. The Nephites are said to have had captains and chief captains, and that Alma too marched at the head of his armies in Alma chapter 2 verse 16. The plural of army and the specifying of subordinate leaders indicate that this battle featured multiple subordinate commands. No details on names of subordinate commanders were given. In Alma chapter 2 verse 27, Mormon gives the impressions that the Nephites were significantly outnumbered, but this comes after the joining of the Amlicite remnants and the Lamanite army, and we do not have any information on the relative size in the fighting on Hill Amnihu at the opening of this sequence of engagements. Therefore, I am assuming that the armies were roughly equivalent in size. This puts the Nephite army at between 20 to 32 thousand fighters. The use of the plural of chief captain and army leads to the possibility that the number 10,000 was roughly the size of a Nephite army, though this is a very rough estimate. This is a number for an army that will be common at the end of the Book of Mormon. The armies that engaged at Hill Amnihu continued through two battles and two pursuits, so the army that fought at the Sidon Crossing was the same army, minus the dead and wounded from the battle at Hill Amnihu and the pursuit into the Valley of Gideon. We are told that the Nephites lost 6,532 dead at Hill Amnihu, and we are not told the number of wounded. Simple subtraction places the Nephite army at the second battle at between 13,000 to 25,000 warriors. There is no discussion of armor or special equipment. A standard list of missile and melee weapons is given that implies warriors carried both kinds. Swords, scimitars, bows, arrows, slings, stones, and, quote, all manner of weapons of war of every kind, close quote as expressed in Alma chapter 2, verse 12. In this series of battles, the Nephite reliance on spies or reconnaissance is clear. Alma too and his people were aware of the intentions of the Amlicites, as given in Alma chapter 2, verse 12, which clearly denotes a spy network that provided information on internal affairs of the Nephites to at least the chief magistrate. 
Later, Almatu dispatched Zerum, Amnor, Manti, and Limher, and their men to follow the fleeing Amlicites to, quote, know of their plans and their plots, whereby he might guard himself against them, close quote, from Alma chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. This seems to imply that there were dedicated people for spying. These men each had men who worked with them in conducting their reconnaissance and surveillance activities. The purpose of providing information for future decisions is plain. It is probable that these men were either the same or similar to those who gathered the earlier intelligence on Amlicite intentions. Alma II's army consisted of at least two subordinate divisions and a group of spies. The army was commanded by the chief magistrate, who had a group of men who served as his guards and fought alongside him during the course of the battle. From this and other battles, it seems that the chief captain was not in the front of the fighting, though in this case and other battles, the trend is that during movement, leaders led the march. Alma II led his army as they crossed the Sidon River, and thus there was a direct clash of leaders. Alma II's guards remained with him throughout, as is implied in Alma chapter 2, verse 33. Amlicite Forces This story begins with a contest over rulership, should the Nephites be governed by a chief judge or a king. The Nephites gathered and determined the decision through the voice of the people. The decision was for continuing with a chief judge. Amlicai, who inspired the division, was not happy with the decision, and he was declared king by his followers. He had his followers take upon themselves a new name to distinguish themselves from the rest of the Nephites. They became Amlicites. This certainly served both a sociological and political benefit. For a people who were consistently designated by the name of their forebears, the ideas of taking a new name was symbolic of separation. It also created an us-against-them perception of the world that bonded his followers into a unified people. Almost immediately after he was designated a king, Amlicai ordered his followers to begin arming themselves, as we are told in Alma chapter 2 verse 10. Mormon did not give specifics about the weapons other than to say, quote, all manner of weapons of war of every kind, close quote, from Alma chapter 2, verse 14, which is a common phrase Mormon used. Since the Amlicites and Nephites were the same people until this division, it is probable that they used the same types of weapons, both missile and melee, and fought in the same engagement style. Missile exchange followed by a charge into the melee engagement. The Amlicites also divided their large army into subordinate elements with, quote, rulers and leaders, close quote, appointed over them from Alma chapter 2 verse 14. It is probable that their organization mirrored the Nephites in nearly every manner. It is also probable that the fighters who fought on either side were not professionals, but were rather militia called up at a time of emergency. It is possible that many of the leaders of the Amlicites and the captains of the Nephites had served together in military engagements previously. The ferocity of the fighting and the nature of this first battle 
a rebellion from the will of the majority, made this a particularly bloody battle, and that was why the casualty figures were so high as percentages of the overall force. This leads to an estimate of between 20 to 50,000 Amlicite warriors. This assumes between 20 to 50% deaths in the battle. In ancient battles, this is a very high percentage, and therefore the estimate could easily be doubled. A number in excess of 100,000 is possible, but seems unlikely based on previous battles and the unwieldy nature of such an enormous army in what was certain to have been a relatively constricted area. Also, Mormon does not tell us that one army was much larger than the other. Unlike the Nephites, the Amlicites did join with another force for the second major battle, but their own forces did not receive any reported additions. The Amlicites lost 12,532 dead at Hill Amnihu. We are not told the number of wounded. I am assuming that the figure of dead probably included those who died in the pursuit as well. The number of Amlicites fighting at Sidon Crossing was the number present at Hill Amnihu minus the casualties from the battle and the pursuit, or somewhere between five to 35,000 fighters. Amlici was at the forefront of the battle at Sidon Crossing, yet there are no details of him leading the fight at Hill Amnihu. This is also true of Alma too, and is probable support to the idea that the senior leaders were typically at the front during movement only. Lamanite Forces The size of the Lamanite army is uncertain. There are no specific casualty figures given, and only the vague comparative relationship of, quote, numerous hosts, close quote, given in Alma chapter 2 verse 24, and the combined Amlicite Lamanite army, quote, as numerous almost as it were as the sands of the sea, close quote, from Alma chapter 2 verse 27. Previously, the use of the word host seemed to indicate a single mass of fighters or warriors rather than a subdivided organized army. Given the fact that Alma II's spies made these observations under significant stress and fear, it is not useful to identify too many details of the Lamanite organization and size from the first comment. The second comment gives a relative size to communicate to the reader that the Nephites were significantly outnumbered. It is supposed here that the Lamanite army was in the tens of thousands of fighters, possibly 20 to 25,000 strong. This places the combined total of the Amlicite Lamanite army at around 25,000 to 60,000, or more than double the Nephite army. This would certainly seem to be overwhelming. The one detail we receive is the fact the Lamanite king had guards who fought alongside him in Alma chapter 2 verse 32. The king was at the front of the battle at Sidon Crossing. It is not clear from this account whether that was because they were on the march or that was the expected location in battle for a Lamanite king. Given the previous battles discussed with the Xenophytes, it seems that the Lamanite king did not normally lead into battle, except when they were on the march, as was the case in the battle in episode 13. Key Leaders in the Battle Nephite Forces 
Alma II, the chief judge of the Nephites. He was also the high priest of the Church of Christ and the son of the former high priest, Alma. Alma II was a dynamic and charismatic figure who had not just the desire but also the ability to tear down the church. His efforts against the church as a younger man, along with four of the sons of Mosiah II, and the prayers of his father Alma and the church leaders led to a miraculous conversion experience. Alma II was appointed to be the first chief judge in Mosiah chapter 29 verse 42, probably by Mosiah II, though Mormon did not explain the appointment process. He is typically characterized as one of the great missionaries and teachers of the Book of Mormon, with many of his teachings recorded. As a civic leader, he was also a disciplinarian, having recently exacted the death penalty for murder with the judgment against Nehor in Alma chapter 1. The sequence of battles discussed in this episode demonstrates Alma to also be a man of physical strength and personal courage. As identified in episode 16, Alma II's many missionary journeys also focused on political healing and temporal peace as well as spiritual development. Amlicite Forces Amlici We are told by Mormon that Amlici was cunning and wise and that he was of the same philosophical opinions as Nehor, the recently executed Antichrist at the time of the battles in Alma chapter 2 verse 1. He was also a man capable of swaying the opinions of large groups of people. He must have held a position of some authority, either formal or informal, among the Nephites during the reign of Mosiah II, and may have felt slighted by the appointment of Alma II as chief judge. He influenced a large group, probably numbering in the tens of thousands, to follow him, and they sought to make him a king. It is important to point out that this is within four years of the transfer of authority to judges and a chief judge. The voice of the people was against Amlici, and he then began to plot a violent overthrow of the Nephite government. Lamanite Forces King of the Lamanites It is probable that this was the same man who was previously defeated in single combat by Ammon too, and who will later be taught by Aaron and converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is uncertain of the purpose of his involvement in this battle, other than the fact that he seemed to have been raiding Nephite lands, and an opportunity for greater accomplishments suddenly became available. He was certainly intimidated by the success of Alma II in defeating Amlici, as he soon withdrew when Alma II advanced on him and his guards, as described in Alma chapter 2, verses 31 to 32 grand and theater context. The series of battles discussed in this episode can be viewed as confrontational support of the referendum on the new political arrangement of the Nephites. All of the events associated with this battle happened within five years of the change in government. The appointment of a chief judge possibly added to the friction used by Amlici. Additionally, the Nephites had a murder trial of an unrepentant man whose victim was a prominent Xenophyte. 
the two primary issues of the first year of the reign of the judges could only increase any sectional animosity or confrontations that already existed. Nehor, the man that Alma II ordered to be executed, was of a, a particular belief system and group of people to whom Mormon referred on several occasions. The first reference was to Amlesi. We are told that Amlesi was after the order of Nehor in Alma chapter 2 verse 1. It is unclear what Mormon meant in modern terms by order other than group, organization, or tribal-slash-family affiliation. If Amlesi was from the same group or tribe as Nehor was, then, according to tribal customs, he would have felt some need to assert vengeance against those responsible for the death of his family member. In any case, the need to avenge a perceived wrong was not limited to family associations in the ancient world, though they may have been the strongest. It was already mentioned that Amlesi was certainly a man of prominence and was probably influential prior to Alma II's selection as chief judge. Amlesi may have even been considered to become the chief judge by Mosiah II as well, or at least his name must have been known as an available leader. Amlesi used his leadership abilities and familial organizational connections to force a referendum on the new governmental organization. He lost this referendum, and like so many men since, who have sought elective position only to use it as a springboard to dictatorial power, his political frustration turned to armed conflict as a means of seeking power and dominion. Alma too was aware of the plans and preparations of Amlesi and his followers, and the two sections of Nephite society conducted a nearly simultaneous arming of their respective people. In the land of Nephi, the king of the Lamanites had been personally humiliated in single combat by Ammon too, and his son, Lamoni, had publicly defied his will and royal decrees. The personal defeat against Ammon too forced political concessions to Lamoni, allowing him to govern his land outside of the overlordship of the king, his father. All of this had to serve as motivators for mounting a campaign to redefine the king's power and position and using the Nephites as a convenient means to this end. It is uncertain and somewhat doubtful if the ultimate objective of the Lamanite king was total conquest of the Nephites. More likely, this was a large-scale raid with the intent of demonstrating power and authority to the king's followers rather than to the Nephites. Regardless, the army did not seem to be sufficiently powerful to have conquered Zarahemla and all of the other surrounding cities. It is interesting to note that Alma II was surprised by the appearance of the Lamanite army within the land of Zarahemla. This suggests that the spies of the Nephites were either not actively functioning within the land of Nephi, as they were focused on the Amlicites, or that the movement of the king in organizing this army and raid were so quick that any extant spy network did not have time to warn Alma II about the appending attack. Operational Context There was little over-the-horizon planning here. Alma II fought a single opponent and had little information of the Lamanites or what might be happening elsewhere. Some of the possible reasons for this have already been explained. Alma II did use reconnaissance to assist in his preparations. 
He wanted to know where the Amlicites were going and what their intentions were before he acted further. He also recognized that he could not keep up with the fleeing Amlicites with his army in daylight and certainly would not be able to once night had fallen. The use of spies facilitated speed and allowed Almatu to gain the intelligence necessary to act. The choice of battle sites was dictated not through planning on the part of the Nephites, but through enemy decision in the first case and geographic requirement in the second. Both the Nephite and the Lamanite armies marched toward Zarahemla, and the Nephites attacked as they crossed the river. There was a lack of battlefield preparation by Alma II throughout this series of battles. Much of what occurred in sequence was a reaction to events as opposed to proactive shaping or the intent to conduct or lead a campaign against the Amlicites or Lamanites. This is not a condemnation of Alma II, but a statement of the nature of the battles. Technical Context There are two items of significance in this series of battles. First is the mention of the use of armor by the Lamanites in Alma chapter 3 verse 5. This is the first such mentioning of armor rather than the previous mentioning of girdles among the Lamanites. Clearly this denotes a transition as a result of the contact with the Xenophytes who, as previously discussed, were using armor in their battles. Mormon did not elaborate on the nature of the armor so it should be assumed that this was simple armor or protective clothing rather than the more complex armor pieces employed during the Moroni era. There is no mention of a disparity in armor between the Lamanites and the Nephites, so it must also be assumed that the Nephites and Amlicites were also wearing simple armor. The second significant item is the marking of the Amlicites as recorded in Alma chapter 3 verse 4. They marked themselves, as did the Lamanites, with a red mark on their forehead. This mark was to distinguish them from the Nephites. It is unclear at what point the marking took place. It could have preceded any of the battles, and would therefore have been more of a tactical marking system to prevent fratricide during the fighting rather than simply a statement of solidarity with the Lamanites. If the intent was to prevent killing of allies during fighting, then this demonstrated a command and control function as much as a simple political statement. Tactical information is somewhat useful in this battle as it tends to support the discussion in episode 17 on combat. Each warrior possibly carried missile and melee weapons. They exchanged missiles and then closed with their opponents in the melee. The battle at Sidon Crossing also gives information in the loose nature of combat described. There was room on the battlefield for Alma II to withdraw from the close melee, rest, pray, and then return to the fight. This suggests more of an informal style of melee rather than the formalized engagements of, say, the Greek and Macedonian phalanx or even the Roman legion. This would support the fact that in neither the Nephite nor the Lamanite cultures had warfare evolved into the industrialized slaughter of the Roman Republican period, of which this battle is a contemporary. The first battle at Hill Amnihu seemed to be a straight frontal engagement between two relatively evenly matched armies in size, equipment, training, and culture. There were no special tactics mentioned. 
it can be assumed that this battle was a battle of attrition as both sides grasped the stakes. This style of fighting would account for the significant casualties on both sides. Amlesai placed his forces on the hill Amnihu and received the charge of the Nephite army coming up the hill. The use of the hill slope also would account for additional casualties among the victorious Nephites as they fought the initial stage and maybe all of the battle from a terrain disadvantage. The great challenge in the two primary battles was the crossing of the Sidon River while in direct contact with the opponent. A later episode will discuss the difficulties of this in the case of the Lamanite army led by Zarahemna at the Battle of Manti. There seems to be little strategy in the crossing other than heroic leadership. The leaders seemed to be in the front or far forward in the moving forces as they immediately led their various contingents into the geographically decisive point at the ford of the river. Almatu was a more powerful person and leader and therefore his dynamism succeeded where the others failed. Mormon emphasized the role of Almatu's plea to God for assistance in an effort to point out how miraculous a technical and tactical achievement this was. The decision of Amlesai to immediately conduct a second attack against Zarahemla when his forces had been so recently defeated must have been based on the knowledge that the vast majority of Nephite warriors were wandering in the valley of Gideon, and there was a window of opportunity to seize the capital city, regardless of risk to his tired and demoralized soldiers. Tactical Chronology Hill Amnihu Amlesai placed his forces in such a location as to force Almatu to react and conduct an offensive operation. It is important to realize that Almatu was entering into a campaign and not a single-day battle. Mormon emphasized the fact the Nephites had tents with them. If the Nephite leaders had thought this was a one-day battle and then it would be over, they would not have brought the logistical train suggested by the presence of tents. It is unclear what picture Mormon had in mind when he used the word tent, but in a general sense, it connoted logistical support. Almatu led an attack and after a long and hard-fought struggle caused the Amlicites to break and run. The breaking point in this battle took a long time to reach. The account of Mormon seems to suggest that the early stages of the battle were in the favor of the Amlicites, as in Alma chapter 2 verse 17. Mormon used a phrase stating the divine intervention in the favor of the Nephites as, quote, the Lord did strengthen, close quote, them in Alma chapter 2, verse 18. And it was following this strengthening that the Nephites were successful in breaking the Amlicites. Based on the later battle at the Sidon crossing, it can be assumed that the Nephite-Lamanite battles happened with waves and surges of activity and periods of rest. There is debate about whether or not ancient battles had surges or they were conducted with a continuous effort. It is safe to say that a single human could not wield a weapon and strike away at an opponent or opponents for hours without end. Any person would require periods of rest and recovery before resuming the fight. In this battle, 
Mormon may be suggesting in verses 17 and 18 of Alma chapter 2 that the Nephites attacked first with an uphill charge. This was then responded to by the Amlicites with a surge of their own, this time with geography and gravity on their side as they charged down the hill. A pause of some sort, either local or general, occurred and then the Nephites were able to begin to win the day. The pause mentioned may have been one of the many as the charges and surges could have happened many times and Mormon was referring to major events or phases in the fighting as opposed to specific steps in the battle. As the Amlicites broke and fled, the Nephites tried to maintain contact with their opponents and continued to, quote, slay them with much slaughter, close quote, from Alma chapter 2, verse 19. Mormon emphasized that this occurred, quote, all that day, close quote, and continued by explaining that Alma 2 caused his army to pitch their tents in the valley of Gideon, quote, when Alma could pursue the Amlicites no longer, close quote. This was probably as a result of loss of daylight and the inherent difficulties of command and control of military forces at night. The numbers killed for this battle were enormous. 12,532 of the Amlicites and 6,562 of the Nephites. These numbers do not reflect total casualties, but deaths only. This may be a final total from this first engagement to include all those wounded who would later die as a result of their wounds, but this is still staggering when we should add to these numbers a nearly equal number of wounded. In ancient battles, rarely did a winning side have such a high percentage of casualties in comparison to the losing side. The possible reasons for this are many. One reason may be inaccurate reporting in the ancient sources. It was always good to show that the winner, who was usually the source for the battle statistics, came off far better and was much more successful. A second reason could be the fact that much of the killing in the ancient battle happened when one side broke from their organization and fled. The chaotic movement would allow for a significant slaughter as unprotected backs were now left exposed to the weapons of the enemy. If the first reason for skewed numbers was for secular ancient battle narratives, then the numbers in the Book of Mormon can be accepted without question. Mormon was not writing a military history and had no intent to glorify Nephite martial prowess. Following this argument, the reader of the Book of Mormon tends to get a more accurate representation of relative casualties when numbers were given. If the second reason stands as the primary reason for the ancient lopsided victories, then in this battle the Nephites must have suffered heavy casualties in the initial stages and then the emphasis on divine intervention would have that much more impact. Alma too could not keep pace with the fleeing Amlicites. The difference in movement speeds are easy to understand, as it was certain that Alma too was seeking to maintain order and the Amlicites were seeking to escape. Alma too sent out four elements of spies to find out where the Amlicites had gone. They returned to the Nephite camp early in the following morning to report on the arrival of the Lamanite army and the joining of the forces in the land of Minon. The combined Amlicite-Lamanite army had already begun movement toward the land of Zarahemla by the time Alma II received the report. In essence, 
Al-Matu was behind the enemy in terms of decisions and actions. He needed to catch up. I want to change course a bit as we go back to the night of the battle at Hill Amnehu. It is important to appreciate the challenge Al-Masai was facing and the significance of his leadership accomplishments. His army was broken and fleeing for their lives. He gathered them back together, made a political treaty with the king of the Lamanites, and began the conduct of another military operation, all within 12 hours. This is extremely difficult in the modern era of radio and digital communications. He had to have been a powerful leader to have re-welded his army together and have them follow him back into battle. The size of the Lamanite army certainly must have played a role in Amlicai's ability to regain control of his own people. Despite all of this, it is unlikely that the Amlicites were moving quickly or with significant cohesion as they approached Zarahemla. There must have continued to be the collection of returning stragglers and their reintegration throughout the march. Sidon Crossing Upon receiving the report from his spies, Al-Matu immediately broke camp and moved to intercept the attacking and invading armies. The speed of their movement must have been crucial, as they were met by the combined army as Al-Matu led his own army across the Sidon River. The difficulty of fighting a battle while trying to cross a river is enormous and should not be underestimated by a reader's knowledge of the successful outcome. Al-Matu displayed audacity and perhaps desperation in the extreme as he attempted this task. He certainly knew of the danger to his city and the fact it was unprotected. He may have launched the assault across the river because he had no choice. Whatever the reason, it was audacious. Al-Matu led with his guards and they personally cleared space on the western bank of the river for the rest of the army by defeating the leaders of both opposing armies. The sequence connotes that the Amlicites were leading, as would make sense since they knew the terrain and the route better. This would also assist in explaining why Al-Matu and his guards could have success in their risk-taking venture. The Amlicites were beaten emotionally and a determined effort by powerful warriors certainly would have had a demoralizing effect on them. The death of their charismatic leader would have probably broken their will to fight, and the rout would have begun at this point. The king of the Lamanites seemed to interject himself to stem what must have appeared to be a full-blown retreat of his new allies. His failure to slow the advance of the determined chief judge and his personal guards would have completely tipped the balance toward the Nephites. The images provided by Mormon are vivid as he wrote of the Nephite guards throwing the bodies of the Lamanites into the river to clear room for the rest of the army to cross in Alma chapter 2 verse 34. The crossing of that army against dramatic odds was a tremendous battlefield success. Mormon again emphasized the divine providence involved both in Al-Matu's individual battle with Amlicai and the collective battle. Mormon gave credit to the fact the Nephites prayed to God prior to going into battle. This was a recurring way for Mormon to indicate significant and tactically unpredictable success. Military historians often refer to luck as a major contributor to battlefield success. 
Alexander the Great is often credited with being lucky as well as skillful. Mormon never makes this linkage, as he saw with the eyes of a prophet and recognized providence rather than chance as a reason for victory. The psychological factor of shock is critical in understanding the tipping points of ancient conflict. There are critical people and units, and once they are dealt with and an avalanche of defeatism begins, a very powerful army will break and run, even though in statistical terms it still has a commanding advantage. The battle at Sidon Crossing was probably one such case of this emotional avalanche. The Nephites maintained pressure on their fleeing opponents and pursued many all the way to the northwest and a wilderness area inhabited by, quote, wild and ravenous beasts, close quote, from Alma chapter 2, verse 37. The campaign of pursuit must have been coordinated and lasted a period of days as Mormon described the combined fleeing warriors as being, quote, met on every hand and slain and driven until they were scattered on the west and on the north until they reached the wilderness, close quote, from the same verse 37. The king of the Lamanites may have fled before this, or he may have participated in these constant defenses and fights until they could escape through the wilderness and back to the land of Nephi. The fact that a Lamanite army returned to attack the Nephites so soon after this retreat seems to imply that the king returned to the land of Nephi more directly. The casualties for this second battle were unnumbered, quote, because of the greatness of the number, close quote, from Alma chapter 3, verse 1. The battle at the crossing site had to have been significant and involved significant casualties, but the emotional successes described previously probably meant that the dead from this battle were not necessarily any greater than those at Hill Amnihu, and may have been significantly less. Thousands of dead would have been a great number that would have emotionally taxed any to count them. The numbers would not have had to reach the tens of thousands to have made Mormon's words true. Battlefield Leadership Unlike the Battle of Manti, where Mormon gave us sufficient information to analyze battlefield decisions, here the reader must read more between the lines. There is not a lot of insight into Alma II's leadership, especially not in the portion at Hill Amnihu. Mormon recorded that Almatu led his army to battle, and later Almatu took immediate charge of the most critical part of the battle. It is difficult to measure Almatu other than through the demonstration of his heroic leadership. Almatu placed a significant amount of emphasis on spies and intelligence collection. Both before and during the tactical engagements, Almatu collected information on the domestic activities of the Amlicites and then again on the movements and intentions of the fleeing Amlicites. Almatu was a decisive leader. He attacked up the hill against the Amlicites. He determined to camp rather than pursue the Amlicites in the dark, a decision that placed his army in position to stop a combined attack on Zarahemla. Consider this. If Alma II had continued the pursuit of the fleeing Amlicites the evening prior, his army could not have responded to the combined attack toward Zarahemla. Alma II moved his army immediately toward Zarahemla once he received information on the attack of the Lamanites and Amlicites. 
he attacked immediately across the river and into what was to be the heart of the opposing army. He transitioned from defeating one leader directly into the Lamanite leadership. Almatu was a religious battlefield leader. This is probably his least surprising attribute, as he was then the high priest of the church, but it is a recurring theme of Mormon's comments. He had his army pray before going into battle at Sidon Crossing. He prayed during the fighting with Amlesi for strength, as Mormon probably had access to Alma II's own history. It is to be expected that the emphasis on the role of the hand of God in the success of the battlefield came from Alma II. Significance The combination of battles discussed in this episode played a critical role in the existence of the Nephite state as a quasi-democracy, or at least a magistracy, rather than it devolving back to a dynastic kingdom. The defeat of Amasai also upheld the rule of law and the voice of the people as the determinant for making major decisions within the Nephite state. Even though corrupt chief judges would eventually fill the judgment seat, the success of Alma II and his army in defeating Amlesi held this precedent until Jacob II and his efforts completely dissolved the Nephite state into petty tribal groups in the years immediately preceding the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Alma II stepped down from his secular position, he selected his successor and had this selection confirmed by the voice of the people. It is likely that this combination of selection and confirmation came from the lessons of dealing with Amlesi. The subsequent battle fought later in the same year saw Alma II remaining in Zarahemla due to wounds sustained, I assume, in these engagements, as expressed in Alma chapter 3, verse 22. A precedent was established that the chief judge did not need to lead into battle, that will be followed for much of the rest of Nephite history. Lessons Learned Military History The importance of decisiveness in reaction to crisis is the single most overwhelming lesson. The second and supporting lesson deals with the importance of intelligence collection and the danger of being overly focused on a single threat. Alma II did not do everything right, and clearly there was much to divine providence in how the Nephites were saved from disaster in this period. I will address five areas, identification, isolation, suppression, maneuver, and destruction. Identification. Alma II understood the motivation and goal of his opponent. Amlesi did not seek to use stratagems, nor did Alma II, so the nature of the first battle made identification simple. The use of spies allowed the Nephites to know of the planning and preparation and to do their own simultaneously. Alma too was saved from disaster by the fact that the Amlicites and Lamanites linked up, causing his spies to identify both threats rather than seeing the one they were sent after and missing the second if Amlici had followed a different path. Alma II and the Nephite leadership became completely fixated on the Amlicites and seemed to forget, at least temporarily, that there was a Lamanite threat. Isolation Neither side effectively isolated the battlefield. The Amlicites were allowed to flee from Hill Amnihu, 
and they were able to link up with the Lamanites and reinforce their efforts at overthrowing the Nephite government. Only during the final pursuit is there evidence presented by Mormon that the Nephites were isolating their opponents and keeping them under constant pressure. In a way, Alma II's decisive and aggressive attack across the river Sidon served as a way of isolating each leader in turn. Alma II was able to fight the separate leadership of each army by taking the fight directly to the Amnesites. Suppression No army was effectively suppressed until the two separate pursuits when the pursuit was relentless and continuous. The nature of a ford and the size of the armies involved limited the ability for either side to mass and Alma II was able to deny the geographic and emotional decisive points by seizing them first. Maneuver As stated, the attack across the ford and the defeat of Amlici was the emotional position of advantage. The Nephite warriors had the advantage from that point on despite fighting against a vastly superior force. The fact that the Amlicites were dealing with the emotional burden of a previous defeat and chaotic escape only increased the power of Amlicite's death. Destruction The casualty figures are large, and between the two battles and pursuits, number, I assume, more than 30,000 on all sides. The fact that the deaths of the victorious side were so high only communicates the desperate nature of the battles and the fact that both sides were completely invested in the outcomes. These were battles of attrition, mostly in the first case, but to a lesser degree also in the second. Alma II won because his forces killed enough of the enemy to force them into flight. Lessons Learned Spiritual Knowledge and Preparation When we receive knowledge of critical events, we need to act upon that information to begin immediate preparation. It is not enough to know that the adversary is preparing for conflict, but we must do so as well. Turn to the Lord We need to pray to the Lord for success in our struggles with the adversary. The Lord understands our challenges the movements of the enemy, and where we need to be and when we need to be there. It is through his guidance that we can be in the right place at the right time. When in charge, see and lead. Alma II teaches us the importance of seeing the battlefield as a leader. We need to look over the field of conflict and know how to strengthen those who are fighting and know when to personally lead into the fray. Immediate action. Attack when the opportunity presents itself. One of the most important areas in church service where direct leadership is needed is ministering. When leaders are informed by the Lord of where to be and who to see, then they need to go and be there personally. I think this is a direct application of what we can learn from Alma II's leadership in these battles. Immediate action. Attack when the opportunity presents itself. It is critical to move forward and force the adversary away from the decisive positions. Conclusion This is the transitional period of military conflict. The Nephites were still led by a warrior king figure. This started as a battle to confirm the nature of Nephite government and ended with a battle for freedom from Lamanite domination. 
As the battles continued after this, the Nephites became a more bureaucratically led and managed military with permanent chief captains who had responsibility for the management of the wars. The battles that are contained in any detail later in the Book of Mormon were mostly battles led by near professionals or professional soldiers. The Nephite military changed from being one of a militia raised and armed in times of crisis to being a permanent or nearly permanent force stationed in fortifications. The process was not immediate, but it did occur within the next 15 to 20 years. Alma too was the muscular Christian of the Book of Mormon. Usually, his battlefield exploits and competent generalship and audacious decision-making are ignored in Book of Mormon study. Missing this critical aspect of Alma II's personality leaves a hole in the personality of one of the greatest missionaries, teachers, and leaders of the Book of Mormon, and certainly of the people of Nephi. Alma II was one of the great battlefield commanders, and his missionary and religious power and capability should not diminish our understanding of these abilities. He was a great missionary and teacher because he was a powerful and dynamic leader, and he was a powerful leader because he was filled with the Spirit of God. The next episode discusses in a more detailed manner the mothers about whom the sons of Helaman said, quote, We do not doubt our mothers knew it. Close quote. From Alma chapter 56 verse 48. What did these women and their people go through, such that their sons were so powerfully convinced of the truth of their words? That is the heart of what we will discuss next episode. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at warinthebookofmormon at gmail.com. All one word, warinthebookofmormon at gmail.com. Until next time.